All right, good morning. Well, welcome back and happy new year to everyone. Um, in case you have forgotten, you know, every time I come back from break, I just assume that my students have forgotten everything that has ever been said previous. So we are looking at the book of First Peter. You might remember that. And we are uh, focused on this as our main uh, theme throughout the book, right? The main theme that the Apostle Peter has is that in, in suffering and trusting and doing good, these things all go together, right? That, that those who suffer according to the will of God will entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And he's been making powerful arguments so far about the, um, the work of God uh, in us through uh, the seed that he's planted in us. Okay, and so today what we're going to do is look at the next section. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to those, open to that passage. And I'll pray as we get started. Our Father, we thank you very much that in your word you have given us... Uh, a knowledge of ourselves and a knowledge of the a work that you have been doing uh, since creation. I pray, Lord, that you would please give us today um, not only an understanding, but a heart understanding that we can take uh, with us today, knowing who you have made us to be uh, and uh, your purposes for us, and that we would live according to those purposes and that we would bring you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today, uh, the title of this section is, uh, it, um, well, let's see, I'll go back. Um, this is contained in scripture. So we're actually going to be looking at a whole uh, new section today. Last time we talked uh, about the word of God. Now we're going to see uh, that he's going to tell us who Jesus Christ is. And that, that is who, him in this section is Jesus Christ. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvel marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So last time we talked about uh, the, the word. And you remember the two things that the Apostle Paul, uh, two metaphors he used to describe the word of God? What is the word of God to us? I know I'm really asking you to remember way back. It was the seed 
the seed that was planted in us that bore that fruit, right? And everywhere the word of God is planted, that seed is scattered abroad. Everywhere where it takes root, it grows up and it grows up incorruptible because it's an incorruptible seed. It grows up incorruptibly. And therefore, we have to love each other because we all are eternal beings. We're not loving each other for the short haul here. We're loving each other for eternity. And not only is the word of God, though, the seed that starts this, that that grows, but it also is what allows us to grow. It's that milk that he uses, that the, the word of God is the milk that a newborn baby craves, desires that newborn, that, that milk so that he can grow. And you'll remember last time that we said, that I, I said it's not, we don't want to think about those as some sort of metaphors saying something like this. Well, the word of God is like milk or the word of God is like a seed. Really, it's the other way around. A seed is like the word of God, and milk is like the word of God. You know, we see this in other places too, right? We, we see that God compares marriage and the, the union that Christ has with his church. But which one is like the other, right? Marriage is like the true spiritual understanding. We, we understand better because God has given us marriage, so we see that as a picture, but the real underlying truth the mystery that Paul talks about is the union of Christ and his church. And it's the same thing with the word of God. The word of God is bread. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God because, because the word of God is what nourishes us. That's, that's the underlying truth. And we can understand that better because we have these things that we see like bread. And these are so that we have these pictures. But the real seed is the word of God. It's what gives life. Right? Those, these metaphors are things that will help us to understand, but we understand them not as something that the Apostle Peter kind of came up with after the fact. Boy, what, what would be a good thing for me to compare? It's not that. It's because these are underlying truths. Now, it's also, we, we look at this passage, and with this passage, you'll notice all of these um, bold, right? You see all the bold, these are quotes and you'll notice that here, there are quotes here. Um, we see further quotes in these sections. We see later on uh, a, a number. Whoop. We see right here, all of these are quotes. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. So now what we see is a, a different kind of metaphor. Now what he's gonna say is that Jesus Christ is a living stone. Now you see how that one's a little different, right? Because we can see that the word, the word feeds us, milk, right? That, those go together. But what does he mean when Jesus Christ is a living stone? Well, this comes from, these are allusions to the Old Testament. So these are allusions, they're passing references that are made us to think back to the Old Testament. And all of these things that are found in the Old Testament, including quotes and various uh, works that God did in the Old Testament allow us now to understand what he's doing now. But we have to look at this the same way that we saw before. It's not so much that, that he's pulling out of human history these random things that allow us to understand who we are now and who Jesus Christ is now, but rather we have to understand that this, what he's saying here is that we are the fulfillment of everything that has gone before, 
right? We, the, the reason he's able to compare to these things from the Old Testament isn't because we're like things from the Old Testament, but rather that we are actually the fulfillment of the things that God has done. Okay, and this is, the, this is the foundational principle of biblical theology, how we study the Bible. Um, whenever uh, you uh, approach the Bible, you look at the Old Testament, you look at all the stuff that happened in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what's the relationship of that? You know, Pastor Bailey often says that's one of the most difficult parts of interpreting the Bible is to understand how the Old Testament and New Testament are continuous and how they're discontinuous, how they're how they're the same things and how they're different. Because we know that it's, because we can't go to either extreme, right? We're not living in the Old Testament times. Something, there is something new, clearly something new. But on the other hand, it's not just like, well, God was kind of passing the time in the Old Testament and after a while, then he did something totally new. No, rather, he in his eternal plan has brought to fruition exactly what he desired from the start. And the way that we approach the Bible is through uh, the, the, the way that you want to think about it, it's, it's called progressive revelation. So what God does is not to give a new revelation, but he, in, in the sense of being totally discontinuous from everything he did before, but rather he gives a progressive revelation. A really great analogy that is um, the way that we see uh, in springtime, which I'm already looking forward to, a bud on a tree or a bud of a flower. And then in the summertime, we see the flower. Now, how are, are the bud and the flower the same or are they different? Are they the same thing or are they different? Yes, right? They, there, there is a way in which they are of the same essence, right? It's not that somehow the bud is, is bad, right? Because the Old Testament isn't bad, it is just not brought to fruition yet. It hasn't come to the flower yet, but it's perfectly good how it is as a bud. And that's what the Old Testament is. And now what has happened is that God has, through his working in history, opened it up to the flower. And so there are certain things that we'll see that are of the essence that God has worked all the way through the from the Old Testament all the way through to us now, and there are ways in which things look different now, but fundamentally have very, that are, are the same thing because they are God's purposes, okay? And so when you look at the Bible, a, a good way to approach the Bible is to see that it really is in four sections. There are four basic sections of progressive revelation. Um, the, and we'll, we'll talk through these. So we're gonna go through the, pretty much the entire Bible today. So uh, how much time do I have here? These four sections, the first section is um, God's working in physical Israel, okay? So what he does is to establish his people. That is, that is what he does in the first section. So this goes pretty much from the time of, uh, we'll, we'll just say, we'll, we're gonna today start with Abraham. Of course, he started with Adam, but from the time of Abraham all the way through the time of, of David and Solomon, so in that time, he fulfills his promise and because his purpose is to make a people for himself. And that never changes, right? That is, that is his purpose. If you want to think about the theme of the entire Bible, it is that God is doing things to make a people for himself, okay? But then after that period, 
the, the Bible could potentially end at Solomon, right? Because at the end, at the time of Solomon, he's pretty much fulfilled all of his promises. He's done what he said he's going to do, and yet it's not done yet. And so we have the next part, the next major way that God now rolls out new revelation or makes it bigger is to start sending the prophets. And so we're going to look at the prophets. And what the prophets do is to say, see all that stuff that has been happening? Well, God's not done with it yet. There's a future, a future kingdom that's, that he's going to establish that's going to be bigger. So that's the second part. Now moving into the third part, the third part is the gospel. And the gospels, what the Lord does, our Lord Jesus Christ, shows that he himself is the fulfillment of all of the promises. And so in this part, what we see is a greater revelation where he speaks forward the truth, and yet that can't be the end of the Bible either, right? If, that, if we ended, Christ died and, resurre- and is resurrected, then we still have a fourth part. And what the fourth part of the gospel or of, of the Bible is, is that God sends his apostles to reveal what Christ did. What did that mean? And what does that mean for us? And that's where he brings it to fruition so that that's where we are today. Okay, so we're gonna look to see how what is happening in this passage, what the apostle Peter is doing is saying, talking to us today about who we are and what that means. And it's all couched within the eternal purposes of God. So let's take a look at the, um, at the work that God did in that first part. In the first part, uh, of of um, the the work God, what God does is to set up what are called types. So type and anti-type. This is a, a biblical word. Okay, so this isn't just some theological word that some professor came up with. These are biblical word type and anti-type. And what it means is that there are things that God is doing which are going to point us forward to um, a greater truth that has this kernel within it. And the way that he does this is he establishes covenants. So he's going to establish a covenant with Abraham. Because up to this point, God hasn't been just doing nothing in the world, right? There are God worshipers. Uh, we know Job, right? The, the book of Job, God, he's worshiping God. We know that there's a priest. He, he, God even has priests. There's a priest named Melchizedek. He seems to be kind of this mysterious guy who kind of comes in, and, but he's a worshiper of God. And from that, you can kind of say, well, probably there were lots of worshipers of God all over the place, kind of scattered, but that wasn't God's purpose. What God's purpose was, was to make a people for himself. Not to have scattered worshipers, but to make a people for himself. And the way that he did this was to give, make a covenant with Abraham. He says to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he reiterates it a couple chapters later. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an eternal covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. 
all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So he establishes that he will have a people. And right from the start, we know how, why Abraham, uh, what Abraham's response was. What was Abraham's response to these covenants? He obeyed, right? And why did he obey? Because he had faith. He believed. He believed God. And this is, this is one of those stretches, that, the things that goes all the way from Abraham, all the way through his people, that God will make a covenant, he'll make a promise, and then you can believe or not believe. But for everyone who believes, what does God do? Starting from Abraham. Abraham believed and God credited to him as righteousness, right? That is the way that Abraham was saved. He was saved through the work of God. God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was not righteous in believing. His believing wasn't a righteousness that he gave to God, but he believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. And so he believed what God said and his people continue to do that. But they fell into slavery. His children fell into slavery and God showed what he would do that he would bring them out of Egypt, that he would unilaterally, nothing that they had done, but just by his own mighty arm, would destroy the Egyptians and call his people out and then after having delivered them, he would bring them as a people to Mount Sinai and he would make another covenant with them. And here's the covenant. So what he did was bringing these people, he saves them, so they are delivered at this point. They are delivered, they're saved. He's brought them into the, the uh, right before the land to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai. He calls Moses up in Exodus 19. And Moses went up to God on the mountain and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses went down and Israel said, yes, we will do this. And you see what God has done in this covenant. It's an amazing covenant before random priests like Melchizedek. But what he's done now is to bring a people to himself and actually called priests, those who would come be able to draw near to him. He gives them a whole, uh, a, a, a whole system not only in the next chapter, he gives them the Ten Commandments so that they would know how to obey him, but he also gives them a whole system, a tabernacle, where he says, this is the beginning. I promise in this tabernacle, I promise to be your God and you're my people. And what that means is I have to live with you. So I'm gonna live with you and I'm gonna make a tabernacle because you're not holy. You can't approach me. But what I will do is I will cover myself and I will dwell in your midst and I'll call it the house of meeting and I will allow Moses to approach and I will allow a a high priest once a year to come into the Holy of Holies and to make intercession for you. And not only that, but all of you will be able to bring offerings to me 
you'll all be able to come and to approach the Lord. And so the whole nation was blessed because they could bring sacrifices to the Lord. And they would do this at, at various times that God had set apart, and he had certain times where they would go and they had certain types of sacrifices and, all, and different types of animals, but they were all not so that they would be saved. They had already been saved, but so that they would be in fellowship with God. They would make sacrifices that would, um, that because they had sinned, they had to be brought back to God, and then they ultimately had fellowship offerings where they would themselves eat with God, with the priests in the tabernacle. And all of these things were amazing. So what, of course, what happened was all the people just rejoiced and it was a happy ending. No, that's not what happened. What happened? Well, right away, they rejected God, right? They right away rejected him. And this is the story of the Bible. They rejected him and they wandered in the wilderness for years. And yet God in his faithfulness said, he called them back after 40 years and Deuteronomy means second, the second giving of the law. So after these, all the older people had died, the next generation came and, and Moses reiterated the law and he again says to them, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. You are my people. And so they, this time, actually go into the land. God goes ahead of them. He destroys the enemies. They get into the land. They settle. And everything was great. No, not everything was great again. Because what happened? Of course, once again they fell. And the judges came. And God would deliver them because they would reject him. And yet they would come back to him. And they'd reject him again and, and come back. But eventually he, he would pull them back through the work of a judge, through a mighty deliverer. And the last of those judges was Samuel. And Samuel was a great judge and really brought all the people together. So what was their response? What was the response of the people? Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They want to be like all the nations, right? Not God's own possession. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. And again, they reject him as king. And yet, God is faithful, and he does establish a king for them. He establishes a good king named David. And David is a man after God's own heart, and David subdues all, all the enemies around them and unifies them as a people. And he has it in his heart after this that now the Lord will finally have a dwelling place right with us. He'll have a temple, a permanent temple. Instead of a tabernacle that moves around, he's going to have a permanent temple and he's going to dwell with us forever. But God doesn't have that as a plan for him. But he has a different plan. And so he speaks to the prophet Nathan. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you. You want to build a house for me, but I say this, I will build a house for you. 
When your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so what the Lord does is say, I am the one who establishes the house. You're not able to establish a house for me, but I will establish a house for myself, and you'll now have a king that will rule forever over you. And so, of course, this is a fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon comes and he establishes the, uh, a temple, and he builds a great and amazing temple, and he dedicates it. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of fathers' houses of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in a thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. But even at this point, he recognizes that isn't really the case because he asks kind of this rhetorical question at the end. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much, this, how much less this house which I have built? And so at this point, God has established all the things that he set out to, that he said he would do. He has made a people, he, all the promises to Abraham. He's even blessing the nations around them because uh, they can, because uh, Israel is a blessing to them. He has established um, a, a, a temple where he dwells with them. He has given them a law. And so all of these things are true blessings, right? This is what God has done. This is the bud of the flower. So we don't want to think about this as something bad. These are all true blessings because these people, the Israelites at this time, had blessings that were unimaginable across all the rest of the world. They knew God and they had a place that he dwelled with them and they were able to approach him with sacrifices of thanksgiving. And so these were amazing things. And yet, what was their response? Again, they reject him. Even after the completion, God has now at this point completed this first work. And even now, they reject him. So now God moves into a a greater revelation. And this greater revelation is the revelation of the prophets. Because now he's going to prophesy and he's gonna say that there will be judgment but there will also be restoration. And so in Hosea, the first of the prophets that prophesy the destruction of Israel, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to him, name her Loruhema, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horse, or horseman. And when she had weaned Lo-Rohema, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Lo-Rohema, no compassion. 
and lo, I mean, not my people. But in the very next chapter, what does he say? He, he does say, now looking forward in the future, I will also have compassion on her who had not contain, obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. So even in the midst of the hatred, the rejection that they have for him, God says, you will be judged, but you will also be redeemed. And Isaiah gives similar prophecies. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. He will, he will be your temple. But to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So even though God will make himself a sanctuary for them, still this rock they will stumble over. And again, Isaiah says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I'm the one who's going to build this house. And again, he continues to expand his kingdom. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord, on horse, in chariot, in litters, on mule, and on camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. That in the future, now there's a a greater, the bud is opening even greater, that now even as you bring these sacrifices now, a time is coming when you will go out and you will bring in the Gentiles as an offering. You're gonna bring bring an offering, they're gonna be an offering to the Lord. And again in Micah, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Zion in the center of Jerusalem has sent forth to call the people in and the people are coming in and they will praise him there too. And so all of this points forward to a great Messiah who's coming, right? And this Messiah is gonna come and and what he's gonna do when he comes to the earth is to what? To break the nations. He's gonna destroy the nations. He's gonna establish Jerusalem. He's gonna be a great king in Jerusalem. That's what all the prophets point toward, right? And so that's what happens. God sends a man who comes and he's a king and he overthrows the Roman government and he establishes for himself a nation. No, that's not what happens. So what, God doesn't fulfill his prophecy? Not at all. 
God does fulfill his prophecy. And how does he fulfill it? Jesus Christ himself comes. So this is now a fuller opening of this flower, the progression of this revelation. He again shows now that Jesus Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment. When he goes in at the beginning of his ministry and cleanses the temple, he loves the house of the Lord. Why? Because the temple of the Lord is the center of everything God is doing. He's going to call nations. I want it to be a house of prayer for the nations. But instead, you're making it into a den of robbers. And so he goes in and he flips over everything and whips the, the money changers. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when it was raised from the dead, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said these things and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken, that Jesus himself is the temple. And again, now at the end of his ministry, when he approaches into, the, the, um, into Jerusalem at the um, Uh, triumphal entry. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave to you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, this is the time of visitation and now what's gonna happen, their enemies will come, they will destroy everything, tear down the walls and the temple itself, not one stone is left on another, totally destroyed. And again in Matthew 21, Jesus then in his time right after the triumphal entry. Now he's teaching and giving parables saying about how the chief priests had rejected him. And Jesus said to those chief priests, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills the prophecies, right? And yet, they're not fulfilled at this point. God hasn't totally fulfilled them because what has happened? I mean, at this point, God promised the temple. He has... But on the one hand, Jesus says, I'm the temple. On another hand, Jesus says, the temple's gonna be wiped out. So what is the fulfillment of this? Well, now we finally get to, that was the pre-teaching. pre <laughs> Now, today, what is the fulfillment? The fulfillment is what the apostles teach us here. And the apostles teach us what this means and what this means for us. What does this mean for us after all? Well, that Jesus Christ is the living stone 
but more than that. You know, a lot of times, what, you hear, you'll hear a lot of teaching about typology and about, okay, you know, this, there's a representation in the Old Testament, the temple represents Jesus, and in the New Testament, Jesus is the anti-type. And that's really neat to study typology, but if that's where you end, then you've missed the whole point, right? Because the whole point is not just that Jesus simply fulfills these in some sort of neat parallel, but rather that being the living stone, now this means something for us because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And that is the full fruition of the flower. That Jesus Christ came to fulfill all of these things and now we live in a time where we are in Christ. So if Jesus Christ is a living cornerstone, then what are we? What are we? And coming to him as, a living, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is the point, right? This is the fulfillment. Why did God build a temple? What is his purpose? This fulfills exactly what the Lord promised to Abraham, all the way from Abraham, that he would have a people for himself. This fulfills everything that he promised to the Israelites, that you will be a nation of priests. You'll be a holy nation set apart for me. This fulfills everything about the temple in the promise that he gave, the covenant that he had with David, that I will build a house and I will have a king who will rule over it forever. And now we are in that house to do what? What's the point? What do priests do in a temple anyway? They make sacrifices. Are you making sacrifices? Anyone here been sacrificing lately? Why not? You should be. Yes, that we should make our bodies a living sacrifice. Remember, as living stones, we're being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood for what purpose? To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What sacrifice does he demand from you? Does he demand a goat? Does he demand a sheep? What does he demand? What is your sacrifice that you bring? Yourself. You are the temple, you are the priest, and you are the sacrifice, right? This, this is our spiritual act of worship. This is what we do. This is our point. Our point now is the culmination of all that God has done for 6,000 years is that we would bring forward a sacrifice and that sacrifice has to be nothing less than our whole selves because that's what a sacrifice it is. is. It is devoted to the Lord. 
And there are many different ways that we can do this. The Apostle Paul saw himself as a sacrifice and every one of you who is a minister of the word, and all of us are to one point or another, whether you're ordained to it or not, Paul recognized that even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. The sacrifice that we, that we make, that we offer to God in ministering to one another and in Philippians 4.18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well and well-pleasing to the Lord that as we support the ministry of the word, this is a sacrifice that we make. And in Hebrews 13, we also, the, the book of Hebrews teaches us about what it means to be a sacrifice and what it means to be a sacrifice like Christ who was rejected. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priests as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. This is, this is our suffering, right? The sacrifice is the suffering, that we bear the reproach of Christ. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The first sacrifice we make is our entire selves, and then the sacrifices that we make are everything we have. The fruit of lips that praise him, because he has brought us in deliverance out of bondage. And then, in addition to that, everything we have, everything we have, we have to share with one another. But not only are we called to be priests, but also a holy nation, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were, once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Lo ami, lo ruhema. You had no compassion. You had no, you were not my people, but now you are my people. So what does that mean? We, we now have been brought out. We're a holy nation separate from the world. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, because you don't belong to the world anymore, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. The lusts of the flesh that we are tempted to all the time that we must abstain, but why must we abstain? We don't belong to the world anymore. The flesh belongs to the world, but we are not of the world. We are a holy people. God has given us, uh, made us into a holy nation. And finally, as an offering to God that we keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Those who hate God, those who will not believe, rejected Jesus on the day of his visitation 
But what are we to do? We are the fulfillment of the scriptures, the fulfillment of the prophets, that if we abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls, and we are a peculiar people, some of us more peculiar than others, if we're a peculiar people and we live among the Gentiles, they will reject us, right? We, we will suffer. But what will happen? The fulfillment of Isaiah 66, right? It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 66 that we live among the nations and that we bring the Gentiles in as an offering. God loved us so much. Remember, we're the offering Others have come before us to bring us in. And now we are to live in such a way that we actually are gonna bring in the Gentiles, that we, as, uh, as they observe us, that they would have this, um, that they would believe and that they would come. But I've written very boldly to you, the Apostle Paul's writing to the Gentiles, I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Be bold in what you say. Right? The Apostle Paul was bold in what he said. Be bold in what you say to the Gentiles around you. Be bold in action and be bold in what you say because we are priests of God. The Apostle Paul knew that, but he's not unique. He did have a unique ministry, but we're priests of God and we have an offering to make to God, right? And that offering is, our, is evangelism. And it doesn't end here, of course, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, new Zion coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among him, among them. I saw no temple in that city for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This, this is where we're going, right? The flower's not totally open yet, but we live right now as priests to God. So walk out this week as priests to God, as a living temple. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in your uh, great mercy, you have put us in a time and a place where we can serve Uh, as your priests in uh, a living temple that you have put all over the world, um, that we're not bound in one place at one local temple, but rather that through your mercy, you are bringing in uh, people from all nations. You have brought us in as an offering to you, Lord. Please help us to walk in, uh, in faith before you this week as living sacrifices. We pray in Christ's name, amen.